if you do happen to get land, um, you need to realize firstly that it's not a fast um, uh, money return um, project. It's really a lifetime and you need to be committed. Not everyone is going to go into agriculture. Not everyone is meant to. You are listening to Think African, a seasonal podcast engaging African thinkers and doers on what it means to think African. Remember to like, rate, and review this podcast so that more people like you can find it. I'm your host, J.D. Ramalapa. The former president of Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara, once said, if you want to understand imperialism, if you truly want to know who controls your mind, just take a look at your plate of food. On it, you will see imported corn, rice and millet. That's imperialism. You don't have to look too far. He said this in the early 80s. This plate of food has not changed very much since Sankara's time. For a continent which has most of the world's arable land, Africa still imports a lot of food from other continents. In 2019, the continent spent over $34 billion in food imports, with South Africa surprisingly at the top of that list. Experts in the developing field have so far predicted nothing but doom for Africa's ability to feed itself in the future. They believe that climate change, ongoing conflicts and the coronavirus will further increase malnutrition, food insecurity and restrict development. African farmers are doing their best to produce enough food for everyone. They are also under pressure to do so sustainably. But without government subsidies to secure their markets, many are forced to continue planting cash crops for export, whose highly mechanized farming methods are said to be destroying what's left of Africa's arable land. In today's Think African, we speak to Ruramiso Mashumba, the 2020 winner of the Global Farmer Network Klekna Award for Innovation, to help us understand some of these challenges and what we can do about them. You are listening to Think African. I remember the first day I arrived to a British farm. I thought to myself, these farmers are so cool. You know, they have tractors, planters, combine harvesters. After I graduated, I was determined to return to my country. My goal was to transform the agriculture sector in Zimbabwe. This is Rami Somashumba, a 34-year-old Zimbabwean commercial farmer explaining her journey into commercial agriculture to audiences at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. At the time, she was the 2019 Cornell Alliance for Science Fellow. When I finally got to Zimbabwe, after waiting for so long, I got to meet my bank manager. He came out in a pinstripe suit. He looked very important. I sat there anxiously, and he said to me, young lady, how old are you? <laughs> I replied, I'm 25 years old, sir. He replied, hmm, do you have collateral? I said, well, I just have my university degree, sir. 
And then he was quiet for some time. Then he replied and said, unfortunately, we cannot help you. Next. Today, Ruramiso runs a successful commercial farm in Marondera, 72 kilometers east of Zimbabwe's capital city, Harare. That's where she first started growing indigenous organic grains, including maize, whole brown rice, sorghum, millet, and gum trees. She also breeds cattle. Welcome to our um, piggery. And pigs. So here we have a large white um, variety pig. And this one had um, eight piglets. They're five weeks old now. Her journey to becoming a farmer began when she was just seven years old, inspired by stories of rural women farmers as told to her by her mom. Originally, Ruramiso and her family lived in the capital, but when she was 14 years old, her father bought a farm in Marondera and moved his entire family there to live. That's when Ruramiso was first introduced to commercial farming. When I was doing my, my diploma at school, I was introduced to the, the possibilities that agriculture had because my school really painted agriculture as attractive. So I would say my upbringing was very painted agriculture as very attractive in comparison to a lot of young people I meet on the continent who say that their first introduction to agriculture was, was traumatic. Mine was actually very exciting and had lots of opportunity. Their move coincided with the peak of late President Robert Mugabe's controversial land reform program and the beginning of the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy. We cannot continue to exist here, to live as if we are an extension of the British Empire or an extension of Britain or England. We are Zimbabweans fully independent. We get our instructions not from London, not from Downing Street, directly from our people and from nobody else. Shielded from the politics around her, Ruramiso dived headfirst into her studies and soon found herself among three girls in a class dominated by boys. In my class, there was only three girls out of about 60 boys. So you can see just the, um, the numbers that girls were not really taking up agriculture as an opportunity, as a career choice. But I decided to go on with it anyway because I remember asking my parents and they said to me, just take it as a life lesson and see how it goes, whether you like it or not. So that's how I started. Though Ruramiso's parents were very supportive of her dreams, she discovered she would need more than just a degree from the UK to make her dreams a reality. I had to start from a place where it was just a bush. I had nowhere to stay on the farm. I remember there was uh, some chalets, very dilapidated, that cattle used to stay in. I had to move them out, um, repair the building, and um, try and make it hospitable, look for ways of getting electricity, water. Those things were like a luxury when I first came here. Despite being rejected by the banks, her family was able to help her with a small loan to get started. I was growing king onions and vegetables, and then I marketed them at high-end supermarkets in Zimbabwe, and I started supplying them. So that was my first initial um, project that I started when I moved back to the farm. Eventually, she was able to make what she calls sensible money through export farming contracts with corporations in the West. Profits from those contracts allowed her to invest in equipment, fully mechanizing her farm. 
This achievement, though, puts her at the heart of a global debate over the impact of intensive industrial farming on food security and climate change in Africa. Yet, according to Ramiso, most African farmers don't have the time to think about the consequences of their farming methods on the environment. People have always thought about increased yields. Like, when you talk about how well did you do, it's always about it's never about how well did you take care of the environment. It's always about how many yield, how many tons did you get per hectare or per space. So because of that, there's a lot of like rape to the environment. We live in a in a society where there is no credit or merit for practicing certain practices, especially when you're selling locally. If you use solar instead of diesel to irrigate your crop, solar is much cleaner and better for the environment. But no one, you still sell at the same price, yet it costs you a very hefty fee to make that decision. It's cheaper to use diesel, at least in the short run. As a result of this, many farmers have not made the choice to move away from industrial farming to conservation agriculture, even though it is better for the environment in the long run. The reason why we haven't yet made some of those decisions is one, the cost of the decision is high. You know, when you look at the cost of even buying zero-till planters, it's very, very expensive. Yet if you're looking at farmers who are even struggling to buy um, just a normal planter, what more a zero to a planter, which is more expensive. That's one. Two, there isn't a lot of companies that are to have to have the technology. Yes, companies are starting to bring in um, equipment, but um, again, it's very expensive. The third thing would be that when you start, when you make a decision to move to um, conservation agriculture, you there's a loss of yield for about three years, as in yield decreases, and then it starts increasing maybe in the fifth year. Farmers already, they are, they, to make a decision to, to lose yield, they need to have a backup, some financial backup. This is where organized in, in some countries where it's developed and they can, they're subsidized for farmers who make those decisions to, to, to protect the soils and then they get like the, 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 some sort of subsidy. But there isn't that. A lack of land also means that young farmers expect to make a quick profit. Right now they're renting land. They don't have um, secure land tenure. So if they use conservation agriculture for five years, when the soil structure has improved, starts picking up, then they, the landlord or whoever demands the land. So there is no gain. Add to that the risks that come with climate change. You know, with climate change, the hot suns, long um, periods without water, peat farmers are now irrigating, but then they're using, they're taking out too much water. They're not maintaining the dams, the siltation. So it's quite a vicious circle, but we really need to do something in order to, to bring a nation back to food security. And I think there's so many topics you can touch on and talk about at length on these pressing challenges on, in agriculture. It took time before information about the outbreak of the coronavirus pandemic reached farmers in rural parts of Zimbabwe. By the time smallholder farmers found out about the new travel restrictions and special work permits, it was already too late. It took some time for us to get essential worker um, letters that allowed um, farmers to travel. But that loss of time really affected farmers. Um, and, you know, I, it makes me realize the importance of information. You know, some um, very distant rural areas, some people who, who are used to trading fresh vegetables were still in transit or continued to travel um, with their fresh vegetables. And then they reached the markets. There was no one there to buy. A lot of um, their produce went bad and imagine how long it takes three to four months to grow something and then you take it to the market and it goes bad overnight so some people really went bankrupt 
during that time um, because of unable to access the markets. So that was a, that's a huge effect of COVID that happened to smallholder farmers. Ruramiso warns aspirant farmers not to romanticize farming too much. Farming, she says, is a long game which requires a lot of money and time up front. If you do happen to get land, um, you need to realize firstly that it's not a fast um, uh, money return um, project. It's really a lifetime and you need to be committed. Not everyone is going to go into agriculture. Not everyone is meant to. And there's also lots of opportunities in ag. You know, you can do ag marketing, you can do transport. There's so many things, not just primary production. Or you can actually buy from farmers and, and do um, value adding. So my advice really is that farming is hard. It's a very tough life, a lot of sacrifice to self um, and a lot of sacrifice even you have to, you're responsible for so many people. Do you want that um, before you make the decision? And if you, when you do get the land, you work yourself to make sure that you you bring a return to it. You can't just sit on it and um, go to the dam and catch fish. Rura Miso is very busy. She is currently building a solar power farm. The electricity it generates will be used to power the farm's irrigation systems, offices and storage facilities. She also runs training programs and workshops for women farmers through two organizations she founded, Nandi Africa and Women Who Farm Africa. Since she started farming, she has trained over 500 women in agriculture. Many of them run their own agri-farming businesses today making her the best candidate for the 2020 Global Farmer Network Award. It is my honor to introduce to you the 2020 Global Farmer Network Kleckner Award recipient from Zimbabwe, Roromiso Mashumba. Roromiso is a farmer, an advocate, an agripreneur, and a force for good to be reckoned with. I am so excited to honor Roromiso Mashumba as the 2020 Kleckner Award recipient. Yet this prize comes as a surprise to her. You know, I never thought I'd win it, honestly. I, I never thought I was going to win it because this is a global farmer award. You know, even just winning in your own community is a big deal um, to be able to win something globally. And, you know, it's, it's, it, for me, like I said in my video, it's a reminder that all voices matter. You know, all voices matter. You're, whether you're in, 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 in Europe, in, in the U.S., in Africa, in a small community, whether you're a woman, a man, uh, 25 years old, 30 years old, however old you are, your voice matters. However, not everyone is happy with Ruramiso's mechanized farming methods. There's a growing number of farmers across the continent and around the world who blame commercial farming on soil damage and a lack of nutrient-rich foods in the market. Millian Bile is the coordinator of the Alliance for Food Sovereignty in Africa. In the soil and culture system has uh, uh, brought a lot of health impacts. It's nutritionally poor. It has brought a lot of environmental impacts, bad environmental impacts. And it has eroded the cultural value of local communities, local people. And its human rights record is very bad. So we have to come up with another kind of agriculture which is beneficial to health, which is nutritious, um, which is also beneficial to the environment and to people, to culture, using people's knowledge, and which is also transformational in terms of system change. 
Rura Miso does not respond to such criticism. Her mission, she says, is to feed Africa. So I ask her what it means for her to think African. I think to think African is just to think community. Because in Africa, we're community-based people. We have our uniqueness, you know. We're not, for so long, I feel like we have been made to think that we are, we should be, you know, a certain way according to certain influences. And we've always felt like their ways are better. But I think being African is celebrating who our uniqueness as people and finding out really what is that. And being people of community, Africans, we are known to be people who like to laugh. When I say this, I know, yes, Africa is big. But even when I've attended African forums, African groupings with um, 20 different um, African countries, um, very vast, you know, northeast, west, central, we've always been community people, people who love each other, people who laugh out loud and vibrant with our colors, our music, our food, you know. So I feel like we should use that is what African is, vibrancy, um, community, oneness, love and joy. Next time, we speak to author, artivist, and disruptor from Cape Town, South Africa, Kelly Eve Kopman, about a protest which made headlines at the peak of the COVID-19 lockdowns. When we finally booked the place, because it kind of ticked the boxes we were looking for, there was definitely a moment of, oh my gosh, this is real. You know, we've just, we, we, we've cemented this, we've cemented the dates, we've, we're going to do it. Until then, merci, obrigado, gracias, asante sana, siabonga. Thank you for listening. Stay safe and sound.